We made you pay a price big time. For a year, you had to answer every question and constant about losing to a 16 seed. And we're going to reward you now. And oh, have they rewarded them. Tony, right now, Bennett has on that resume, national champs. The golden two words, national champs. He's going to be heading to the Hall of Fame when his career is over. That gentleman needs no introduction because nobody does it quite like Dickie V. This is the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for being with us on your Tuesday afternoon. While we're celebrating, we're talking about what a great Final Four, what a great tournament we had. It's a little sad that basketball is done until November, at least at the college level. We just had one of the best March Madness tournaments that we've had in a long time. Seriously, think about what we saw. We saw excellent games all through the Elite Eight. We saw a fantastic national championship, just the first one since 2008 to go to overtime. And we saw maybe the greatest redemption story in all of college basketball. One year after becoming the first one seed to lose to a 16, the Virginia Cavaliers are national champs. They are kings of the basketball world, and they do it in the most Virginia way. Their tournament run was far from easy. It was blue-collar, it was grinded out, it was tough it out. And that's Virginia basketball, that's what they did through this postseason. They were losing at halftime to Gardner-Webb. They were down by double digits in the first half. Everybody was talking about, is it going to happen again? If Virginia loses back-to-back years in the first round to a 16 seed, are they even allowed in the tournament? You know, jokes like that were starting to fly around. They turned it around, they moved on. They struggled against Oregon. They were down in the second half of that game, Oregon being a 12 seed. They came back to win that one by four. They go on to the Elite Eight, and they get one of the most improbable finishes we've ever seen as they take down Purdue in overtime. They were fouled on a three-point attempt with under a second to play against Auburn in the Final Four, make all three foul shots to win by one. And then last night, DeAndre Hunter is part of his career-high 27 points, which again comes in the national championship game. Sends the game to overtime where Virginia Tech cruises. I'll be the first to admit that coming into this season, I was never going to put Virginia as my national champion when I'm filling out my bracket ever again. I said that last year. I've said that when they've cost me my bracket before, I've had too much confidence in them before that I wasn't going to make that mistake again. So I'm sitting here in my studio eating crow today because Virginia comes back and proves everybody wrong. With all the adversity Virginia faced this season, coming into the year even, constantly being reminded and asked about being the first one seed to lose to a 16 in the NCAA tournament, the way that they had to struggle through this tournament, get some improbable shots so many times to go in their favor that it had to be divine intervention. It is the greatest redemption story in all of college basketball. Did they get some calls to go their way that probably shouldn't have? Absolutely they did. But that's all part of basketball, and Auburn head coach Bruce Pearl will be the first one to tell you that. There is human error involved in the game. Kids make mistakes. Coaches make mistakes. Yes, officials will make mistakes. That's part of the game. Get over it. Sometimes they're going to go your way. Sometimes they're not going to go your way. Grow up. This is part of the game. And he's absolutely right that there were elements of human error involved in the tournament that benefited Virginia. But can you say the officials handed Virginia the championship on a silver platter? No. Because all you can do is control what you can control. And that's what Virginia did. And they stepped up and hit the big shot whenever they were called upon. The officials did not make Diakite's shot go in right before the buzzer to force overtime against Purdue in the Elite Eight. 
The officials did not make three free throws at the end of regulation against Auburn. Kyle Guy did. The officials did not drain a bucket to force overtime in last night's national championship game. That was DeAndre Hunter. You can say that the officials had a hand in helping Virginia toward their title, and maybe they did. That's up for debate. Certainly there were some questionable calls that went in Virginia's favor. But Virginia earned this title with their work ethic and their grit and their ability to come up in clutch situations. That's what they did all tournament long. It's what they did last night. By the way, how'd you like the One Shining Moment video? This morning I get to the office, I get that song stuck in my head because I go back to about 2007 watching One Shining Moment videos. I'm happy for Kyle Guy, the Final Four's most outstanding player. I'm happy for Tony Bennett as head coach. If Tom Izzo's not able to win the Final Four, I'm glad that the next closest somewhat adopted local to the UP is able to do it. So last night's game lived up to the hype, maybe not the way we thought it would. I don't think anyone was thinking it would be an offensive showcase, and it certainly didn't start out that way. I said in the show yesterday, I thought the two teams would combine to score 100 points. And two days after holding a great offense like Michigan State's to 41 points, Texas Tech gives up 85. And if you were monitoring social media like I was in the early minutes of the game when neither team was able to generate any offense, people were upset. People want offense. They were thinking, this is a repeat of the Super Bowl. And maybe even worse than that, because the Super Bowl, you had Tom Brady against an L.A.-based team. It should have been so easy to market, and that game was a dud. Last night, it looked like it was going to be a dud from the start, at least offensively. Maybe you're a defensive person. And while I appreciate defense, while I'm glad it still has a place, whether it be in football or basketball, some nights you just want to get back in your favorite easy chair, put your feet up, and you want to watch teams light the floor up. You just want to see them scorch the rim electrify the nylon on paper we shouldn't have been expecting that but that's what we got and i'm thankful for it but as good as last night's game was it wasn't the only college basketball news making headlines firstly a few hours before tip-off duke defensive specialist trey jones announced that he will return next season for his sophomore year instead of trying to go pro that's a huge win for Duke, and I had a segment back in January after Duke's loss to Syracuse that Trey Jones might be the most valuable player on this year's Duke team. Zion was the most talented, RJ was second, then Cam, but they could win without one or two of those guys in the lineup. They did without Zion for a few games. Obviously, they're a better team with them back, but when Trey Jones left due to an injury against Syracuse, they looked lost. They looked lost on the defensive end. That's not what Zion, Cam, and RJ are known for. They're known for their offense. See, there is a time and place for defense in basketball. So Mike Krzyzewski will have him back for another season. If he can develop a three-point shot, really become a balance guard rather than a defensive-minded guard, he's got a chance to take over Duke in the ACC next year. So Duke was not playing last night, but that's a blue blood team who got a W. One blue blood took a giant L, well, another L, in a long series as of late. The UCLA Bruins. Last night, Tennessee's Rick Barnes turned down an offer from the Bruins to become their head basketball coach. Instead, he accepted a counteroffer to stay at Tennessee. Another blue chip head coach snubs the blue blood program. No thanks, I'll pass, he says to one of the most storied basketball programs in history. Here's the silver lining, though. After a string of off-the-court losses, 
their head coaching job being vacant for over 100 days, it appears the Bruins finally have found their man bringing in Cincinnati's Mick Cronin. Let me say this. UCLA has their man, but they're not done taking L's, and that's not a knock on Mick Cronin because I think that's a great hire. The guy can coach. The L is that a story blue blood program fell this far that the job is so unappealing you can't lure guys away from TCU, from Tennessee, schools with virtually no basketball history or tradition. Frankly, it's embarrassing for the school. It gives the athletic department at UCLA a bad image. Look, I am a diehard Bruin. I'm going to, I'm going to support my program all the way throughout. But this is embarrassing. We've had 100 days to figure out who our next head coach is going to be. There are other programs that have made their decision in less than a week. We have, in the last week, publicly uh, seemingly offered the job to two different head coaches that both turned us down. This is not a good look. They need to rectify the situation. Uh, and if I was them right now, I would hire Earl Watson, my former teammate who coached the Phoenix Suns. And while maybe people can say, well, he's never done it at the college level, save face. He'd take the job. He's going to invest his entire life into the job. And you want somebody in that position that cares. And if you make a mistake, I'd rather make a mistake on our own than continue to go down the list and publicly be exposed the way that UCLA has during the course of this coaching search. ESPN College basketball analyst Sean Farnham, former UCLA basketball player, as excited as Bruin fans are and should be that they've got a guy like Mick Cronin coming to town, it's embarrassing how far from grace UCLA has fallen in the basketball world. Turn back the clock as little as five years ago and the head basketball job at UCLA, and that's a pretty good gig. At least one would think. You heard John mention that two coaches have refused offers from the school in the last week, Jamie Dixon from TCU being the other. But here's the deal. If you're an established basketball coach with an established successful program year in and year out, like Dixon, like Barnes, like Cronin, why would you leave? Why would you leave that and go to the Pac-12? Why would you do that at a struggling UCLA program? They're not in great shape right now. Rick Barnes has something special at Tennessee. They were ranked number one consistently this year. They were a two seed. Jamie Dixon and his team didn't make the tournament this year. They were NIT semifinalist. McCronin did make the NCAA tournament, but they were a first-round exit. Of those three, I would have thought they had a good chance with Jamie Dixon because he's journeyed across the country. He's built programs from the ground up, programs really with nothing there when he took over, Pitt, TCU. I'm not in love with this idea from Mick Cronin's perspective. Yes, you're going to a blue blood program that's got tradition and a rich history of success. But with that will come expectations to win and to win quickly. So if you're an established coach with a good program, why would you leave to take over the UCLA job? A lot less job security. You're starting from scratch. You can make the argument that all three coaches targeted by UCLA in the last week already play in better conferences than what they would get into with UCLA. You can make the argument that the SEC, the Big 12, and even the American are better conferences than the Pac-12. I'm a little iffy on the American. There's a debate to be had there between the American or the Pac-12, which basketball conference is better. But the other two, we can agree, are better than the Pac-12, yes? The SEC and the Big 12? Sean expressed desire that he wanted UCLA to take care of the hiring process quickly. 
He also wanted somebody in-house to be promoted. That way, if it is a mistake, then it's a mistake that you learn from, that you take responsibility for yourself instead of going outside the program to do so. Well, they did the opposite of that. They went out and they got somebody from a different school across the country. So despite getting somebody that I believe is a really good coach, this is still a bad look for UCLA. And the only way that this bad look is going to go away is if Cronin wins and he wins quickly. It's up to him to make this job attractive again because Steve Alford did the furthest thing from that. And you're seeing hires happen just like that. When Buzz Williams left Virginia Tech for Texas A&M, Virginia Tech went out and found Mike Young from Wofford. When Vanderbilt fired Bryce Drew, they had Jerry Stackhouse in there like that. I'm still shocked nobody's given Matt McMahon from Murray State more of a look. The guy was 28-5 and this season at the mid-major level. He looks like the coach that's primed to move on to a Power 5 school. With that, we owe you a timeout. When we come back, I know I'm late to the party on this one, but as a Celtics fan and a journalist, I wanted to do my due diligence on this. I wanted to make sure I got things right and squared away. Paul Pierce has been making headlines lately saying he is better than Dwayne Wade, that he had a better career than D. Wade. He's been routinely mocked and laughed at for the comments. But is there some truth to what the truth is saying? There might be more than people think, and that's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me on your Tuesday afternoon. As always, if you missed any part of the show, you can catch it on demand in the on-demand section of our free mobile app, which you can get from the Apple iStore or Google Play for free. Just search ESPN-UP. Catch this show on demand. Catch any episode of the Sports Pen on demand. If you really want, you can go back and hear Westwood Patriot basketball games. We're a little bit out of high school basketball season now. Spring sports right around the corner. But it doesn't hurt to reminisce. I said before the break that Paul Pierce has been in the headlines lately because he believes he had a better career than Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade has been in the headlines because this week is probably it for him. Unless Miami finds a way to sneak into the postseason, which seems unlikely, this will be Dwayne Wade's last week of professional basketball. In fact, tonight would be his last home game in Miami. One of the greatest to ever do it. I'm going to hate basketball without him. I know a lot of you are too. In my mind, Dwayne Wade is the greatest pro athlete the city of Miami has ever had. A close second being Dan Marino, and then everybody else is a distant third. Paul Pierce recently said that he believes that he had a better career than Dwayne Wade, and for that, the truth has been mocked and laughed at. He has been roundly criticized for his comments. He's drawn criticisms from Gabrielle Union, Dwayne Wade's wife, as well as Dwayne's son, Zaire. But the big question is, does he have a point? Does Paul Pierce have a point for making the remarks that he did? I'm not saying he does or that I believe he does. But I do think there's some debate to be had here. First off, I think it's important to know the context in which Paul Pierce made his claim that he is better than Dwayne Wade. He's not out there campaigning on this. It's not a campaign promise. He's not out trying to smear Dwayne Wade and try to ruin Dwayne Wade week, essentially. He said this during an interview. Someone asked him about it. That was his answer. It wasn't meant to be a campaign. It wasn't meant to make headlines. Yet, here we are. 
When you compare the two on paper, statistically, Dwayne Wade has won an NBA scoring title. Paul Pierce has not. Dwayne Wade has won three titles in 17 years. Paul Pierce has won one ring in 19. Dwayne Wade was a 13-time All-Star. Paul Pierce, 10 times an All-Star. Wade has eight All-NBA selections to Pierce's four. Wade was twice named All-NBA First Team. Paul Pierce was never named to the All-NBA First Team. So on the eye test, is there a debate here? There's not. There's not a debate here at first glance. Dwayne Wade looks like the better player than Paul Pierce. But is that the data that we should be basing our judgment off of? First of all, let's take into account the number of championship rings. Three to one in favor of Wade. I hate, I absolutely hate judging athletes on where they should be in their place in history based on the number of championships that they won. Because if we did that, that means that Joe Flacco is a better quarterback than Dan Marino. That means that Tom Brady is far and away better than Aaron Rodgers, that there's no debate to be had there. I don't agree with that. I know for a fact a lot of you listening don't either. And Paul Pierce did address this when he came out and defended himself. He did address the talent that was around him. His rebuttal was very simply, you give me LeBron James, Chris Bosh's teammates, I'll win more titles than you did. And that is a fair point. You know, I might be devil's advocate here a little bit. I might be a Celtics homer just a little bit. But it's worth investigating. So let's dig a little bit deeper. The talent that Dwayne Wade surrounded himself with compared to the talent that Paul Pierce surrounded himself with. Because keep in mind, he was a part of some great Boston teams. Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen. Who had the better big three? Was it Paul Pierce in Boston with KG and Ray Allen? Or was it Dwayne in Miami with LeBron and Chris Bosh? Which would you have rather been a part of? Secondly, let's ask ourselves about Paul Pierce's argument that he would have delivered more titles to Miami had it been him playing with Chris Bosh and LeBron James instead of Dwayne Wade. Is there any truth to that? Is there truth to what the truth is saying? Let's go a little bit deeper. Let's take into consideration how each player is viewed by the media, what their reputation is with the media. Dwayne Wade, very media friendly. Media loves him. They're going to do a whole tribute for him tonight, his final home game in all likelihood in Miami. If you thought we covered LeBron James too much here at ESPN, you thought it was his network, just wait till this week. It's going to be a big one for D. Wade. Paul Pierce's relationship with the media is a polar opposite than that of Dwayne Wade's. Paul Pierce is not viewed highly by the media. Does that have anything to do with the discussion? Does that have anything to do with why people believe Dwayne Wade is better than Paul Pierce? Probably not. Probably not. But you know the power of influence that the media has. And if it came down to it, who do you think the media is going to back more? Do you think they're going to back Dwayne or Paul Pierce if this debate were to heat up? Again, I'm not saying I believe all this, but I think it's important that we take a look at all aspects, at all angles of this debate. I'm not going to go as far to say that I think Paul Pierce is better than Dwayne Wade. But I do think it's important that we talk about this and we discuss it. I do think there's a debate to be had here. That being said, it's important to look at each player's season, their final year before a big three was established. For Dwayne Wade, that would have been the 2009-2010 season. He was 28 years old. His starting lineup included Quentin Richardson, Jermaine O'Neal, Michael Beasley, and Carlos Arroyo. 
He was an all-star that season. He started all 77 games that he played in. He averaged 36 minutes a night, 26.6 points per game on 48% shooting from the floor, 30 from behind the arc, 76 at the foul line. For Paul Pierce, his last season before a big three was established in Boston, you can add a big four potentially because Rajon Rondo came over at the same time KG and Ray Allen did. That was 2007 when Pierce was 30 years old. That season, Pierce's starting lineup with the Celtics included him, Kendrick Perkins, Ryan Gomes, Wally Zerbiak, and Sebastian Telfair. Pierce played in just 47 games that year, started 46 of them, and averaged 37 minutes a night. During that time, he scored 25 points a game on 44% shooting, 39% from behind the arc, and 80% at the foul line. What's interesting when you compare both of those players is that they each had their best points per game average in a single season, penultimately before a big three was established, one year before the season that I broke down just now. And while shooting numbers, especially from behind the arc, tend to favor Paul Pierce, what you really got to take into account is how Paul Pierce never scored 30 points a game in a single season. Dwayne Wade did. Is there more to basketball than scoring? Absolutely. Do you need to be a scorer to be a positive impact on a game? You do not. But it says a lot when you have one guy who did reach 30 points a game in his career before he had established veteran help around him. Paul Pierce never did that. If Paul Pierce wants to bring up what could have been, what he could have been if he had LeBron James and Chris Bosh instead of Rondo, Ray Allen, KG, Perkins, the guys that he won a championship with in Boston a little over 10 years ago, if he wants to bring up what might have been, you got to look at the two guys by themselves before each of them were part of a big three. And other than shooting from behind the arc, those numbers tend to favor Dwayne Wade. Pierce wants you to believe the argument that he would have elevated the heat instead of having you believe that LeBron and Chris Bosh were the ones that elevated Dwayne Wade because that wasn't the case. Dwayne Wade was already in his prime when the Big Three was established in Miami. He was already scoring in the mid-20s, high-20s, even 31-season points per game. Paul Pierce had a few rough years scoring the basketball before KD and Ray Allen came. You can make the argument, it's a lot easier to make the argument that the Big Three elevated Paul Pierce's game a lot more than having a big three in Miami elevated Dwayne Wade's game. Paul Pierce and Dwayne Wade are both Hall of Famers, and as a Celtics fan, I will always think Pierce is a legend. But to me, Dwayne Wade just had the better NBA career. Maybe not for the reasons that the pundits are arguing. It's not as easy as a flashy chart on Facebook that compares the number of rings or the number of all-star appearances. And while I do believe there's an argument to be had here, I do believe that Dwayne Wade had the better NBA career of the two, but not for the reasons the media wants you to believe. With that, let's take a timeout. When we come back, Chris Davis in the midst of a historic slump. Plus, the Stanley Cup playoffs drop the puck tomorrow night, but if you're a Red Wings fan, tonight's the big night for you. And that's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me on your Tuesday afternoon. Here's your Sports Center update. Cleveland Cavaliers owner Dan Gilbert has renamed Quicken Loans Arena to Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. 
The U.S. women's national hockey team blitzed Russia 10-0 this morning in their final prelim game of the Women's World Championship in Finland. The U.S. now turns their attention to the quarterfinal round where they will meet Japan. And finally, the winner of the upcoming Fortnite World Cup will receive a $3 million grand prize, more than you would get if you won the New York Marathon, the Tour de France, the Indianapolis 500, or Wimbledon. So kids, if you're listening, adults maybe, if your mom, wife, what have you, says, stop playing Fortnite, you've got homework to do, spend time with me, we're going to see my parents, whatever it is, you tell them that you're training, that you are about to strike it rich. There's no lottery that's going to contend with the Fortnite World Cup and its $3 million grand prize. As popular as that game is, I've never played Fortnite once in my life. I've never watched Game of Thrones. I know people are big into that. I've never seen Breaking Bad. If it's related to sports, chances are I've probably seen that. Probably involved in that. I've played Madden. I play my share of video games, but mostly revolves around Madden, NHL hits. That was the game back in the day. Tell you what, speaking of NHL, the Stanley Cup playoffs officially dropped the puck tomorrow. 16 teams left standing, but for those who did not make the cut, the other 15... Their big night is tonight, the NHL Draft Lottery. Basically, tonight around 8 o'clock Eastern, we are going to find out who gets the rights to Jack Hughes. Who is going to draft Jack Hughes this offseason? The odds on favorite right now are the Colorado Avalanche. Here are the odds. Colorado is the favorite to get the number one overall pick in this summer's NHL Draft with 19%. They have 19% odds to get the number one pick, and essentially that means they're going to lock up Jack Hughes. You have got Los Angeles after them at 14%, New Jersey with 12 and then the Red Wings. They've got the fourth best odds to get the number one overall pick this year. They come in at 10%, followed by Buffalo, the New York Rangers, Edmonton, Anaheim, Vancouver, Philadelphia, Minnesota, Chicago, Florida, Arizona, and Montreal, rounding out the list with 1%. So essentially at 8 o'clock tonight, it'll be Tankathon on TV. We're going to find out who Jack Hughes is going to play for this fall. We're going to find out who's going to get the rights to take him number one overall this summer. It'd be like Zion Williamson not going number one overall in the summer's NBA draft. So this is a unique NHL draft coming up compared to recent years. We know who the number one pick probably will be in recent years. There was a lot of debate who would go number one, who would go number two, but you had two blue chip guys that you couldn't go wrong with in the top two spots. This year, it seems to be an odds-on favorite that Hughes will go number one overall. He is the U.S. National Development Program's all-time leading scorer just downstate in Plymouth. A little undersized at 5'10", 170. Could he stand to get a little bit bigger? Absolutely. Jake Gensel just came out with an article about that. People thought, you know, is this kid too skinny to survive in the NHL? He knew that too, and he started changing his diet, less carbs, a lot more eggs and meat, and he's turned into such a prolific scorer. So Hughes will be the grand prize in this summer's draft at the USHL level this year, scored 23 goals in 41 games, a total of 86 points. He skates well, he scores well, he passes well, he does everything well. And as good as the U.S. national development team has been, they've never sent anybody directly from the USHL level to the pros, and he could be the first guy to do that. And while there is an odds-on favorite for the number one overall spot, there are a couple other grand prizes this year. Namely, who's going to go number two and number three overall? Kapo Kako out of Finland. 
Six foot two, 194 pounds, a winger, shoots from the right-hand side, scored 22 goals, added 16 assists in 45 games playing in the Finnish Professional League this year, and oh yeah, he's only 17 years old. He's ready to come to America and see if he can make an impact immediately for an NHL team. It's largely expected that those two are going to go number one and two respectively in this year's draft. But rounding out the big three, Vasily Podkolzin out of Russia. He doesn't have the height that the other two have, but he's got good size at 6'1", 190 pounds, a right winger. He's been playing in the KHL professionally. He captained Russia at the international stage. This is another talented European player who's ready to make the jump over and be a prize for somebody in this summer's draft, a guy who could immediately step on the ice and make an impact. So those are the top three prospects in this summer's NHL draft. Ahead of tonight's Tankathon, we find out the draft order for the first 15 teams in this year's NHL draft. And again, Colorado, the odds-on favorite to get the top pick, followed by Los Angeles and New Jersey. Detroit? We'll see. They're right now sitting in fourth, or at least with the fourth best odds. But if you could find a way to keep Jack Hughes in Michigan, I think Detroit fans would be really happy with that. Got to be happy with the young core you've got. Where Larkin is the old man of the team? You know you got youth when that happens. Tara Hirose out of Michigan State, excited to keep him around? Be optimistic, my Wings fans. You've got a good young group. Even if you don't land Hughes, you're going to get somebody special early on in this year's draft. It's going to be a good group. And you've got Jeff Blaschel, just got his extension. He's got time to build the team that he wants, and he's been doing that. He's been building something that we think is going to be special. And while the Red Wings should feel optimistic... I'd like to think Chris Davis of the Baltimore Orioles can feel optimistic as well. It's been a rough start to 2019 for Davis. He is 0 for 49 to start this season. Hitless in 49 at-bats to start the year, a new major league record. Davis's last hit was a double back on September 14th of 2018. September 14 was his last hit. Today's April 9th. At one point in his career, Davis was one of the most feared power hitters in baseball. They'd stick him in the cleanup spot in Baltimore's lineup. And then the PED suspension, strikeout numbers started going up. Davis just hasn't been the same. And certainly the fans are frustrated. They weren't expecting a great season in Baltimore this year. They lost Manny Machado and Adam Jones, but they were expecting something out of Chris Davis. So is Davis hearing boo birds when he plays his home games at Camden Yards? He is. The good news for him is nobody goes to watch the Orioles anymore, so it's not very many boos. Adding to the frustration is that since Davis signed a contract that guaranteed him $92 million from Baltimore, he struck out in 35% of his at-bats. This year is slightly better. He's striking out in 27% of his at-bats. But $92 million for a guy who hasn't hit the ball since September 14th of last year. He hasn't scored a run since September 18th of last year. He hasn't hit a home run since August 24th of last year. Davis set an MLB record hitting 168 last year. That's the lowest batting average in MLB history for a player with a minimum number of at-bats. Davis was 0 for 5 last night in the 12-4 win over Oakland, and the Orioles are better than people thought they would be. They're 5-5 five and five so far. They're hanging in there. Davis at 0-5 was hitting the ball. I mean, he's putting it in play. Strikeout's still not acceptable at 27%, but that number is going down from what he was averaging. Had a couple of warning track fly balls last night. He's getting the bat on the ball better than he has been in recent years. I'm trying to see this 
as a glass half full kind of guy. I'm trying to look for the positive because I don't want to rip on Davis. I hope he gets out of his slump. I have nothing against Chris Davis. I hope that things start working out for him. So at what point, if your Orioles manager, Brandon Hyde, do you simply say, we can't afford to have this guy in the lineup? And he's just not doing it for us. He's not producing. I can't play him every day. He hasn't hit to start this season. Hitless in 49 at-bats. By the way, before last night, the previous record for hitless number of at-bats to start a season was held by Eugenio Velez of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He started year 0 for 46, but he was a pitcher. So give him a little bit of a pass. A National League pitcher, but still a pitcher. So that's one dubious record that Davis now holds. The other, of course, being the lowest batting average in MLB history for a single season. He might break that again this season. Let's say he plays tonight, and he gets a hit in his first at-bat. He starts the year 1 for 50. That gives him a batting average of 20.020. I am pulling for him just as a human being. I'm not against him. I'm not against the Orioles. I'm hoping that things work out for Chris Davis because I know it's tough on him. He said so, but he also said it's not expected. And when you're getting $92 million, you got to perform. Philadelphia let Bryce Harper hear it. He got his $330 million contract in the offseason. Goes over three with two strikeouts his first game in Philadelphia. He heard it from a few fans. Not many, but a few. When you are owed $92 million, you better be hitting the ball. And you better be effective. Davis has two RBIs this season. You can't have that in the middle part of your lineup. One of them came from drawing a bases loaded walk. So it comes back to the question, if you're Brandon Hyde, first-year manager for Baltimore, what do you do? Do you continue to play him? Do you take a look at your other options at first base? Well, first of all, you've got no one else who's a true first baseman on your team. The current infielders on Baltimore's roster include Hanser Alberto, a shortstop, Richie Martin, also a shortstop, Renato Nunez, a third baseman, Rio Ruiz, a third baseman, and Jonathan Villar, your second baseman. You could put a catcher over there at first base. That's worked before for a couple of teams. Trey Mancini has experience playing first base, but you need him in left field, his natural position. So you've got some options if you're Brandon High, but not many. Right now he's dropped Davis down to the sixth spot in the lineup, a place where he can still be a power bat if he can get that going again, which again, he's hit the ball well. He's making contact with the ball. Strikeouts are down. It's just not falling for him. But that's where you want to be if you are in this kind of a situation. You don't want to be 0 for 49 with 30-something strikeouts. You want to be putting the ball in play. Things are going to start falling for you. Let's take a timeout. When we come back, we will preview the Stanley Cup playoffs, plus the Pistons with a big chance to get themselves off the postseason bubble next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me on your Tuesday afternoon. We wind you down to the 5 o'clock hour. It is go time for the Detroit Pistons. It looked like they were going to get into the postseason maybe as high as a sixth seed. But after losing each of their last four games, the Pistons are now one of three teams battling for the final spot in the NBA playoffs. They look to get back on track this evening 
for the final home regular season game, Fan Appreciation Night, as the Memphis Grizzlies are in town. Here's what they're looking at. The Pistons are 39-41, and 41, two games left. Very simply, if they win both, then they're in. If they lose, eh, we'll see. We'll have some tiebreaker scenarios to go through. Memphis comes in at 32-48. and 48. They're not contending. They know they haven't been for a long time. They sit 13th place in the conference right now. Looking at the advantages, where the advantages lie for each team, for Detroit, they're going to have to shoot the ball from behind the arc, and they're going to have to do it with efficiency, and they have to take care of the basketball. Detroit is averaging just over 12 three-pointers per ball game. That's tied for ninth. That's one of two categories where the Pistons are top 10 in the NBA, the other being turnover efficiency. Detroit averages 13 turnovers per game. That is 10th best in the NBA. The Grizz, however, are pretty good at taking care of the basketball as well. 13.1 turnovers per game, 11th best in basketball. So two teams that are in the upper half of the NBA as far as turnover efficiency. Memphis's offensive struggles have been well documented. That's why they are where they are right now. But don't sleep on them defensively because they're 7th in the league in steals per game at 8.4 and they're ninth in defensive rating at 108.6. So they're a team that does a lot of nice things on the defensive end. Offensively, neither team scores the ball very well. The Pistons are 28th in the league in points per game. Memphis is dead last. The defense is what keeps Memphis in a lot of these games. The Pistons have got to get it going from behind the arc first and foremost. It's a matchup that should favor Detroit. Again, averaging 12 made threes per ball game, tied for ninth in the NBA this year. That's going to have to be the deciding factor for the Pistons tonight. Got to space the floor and got to knock down your threes. It's a decisive advantage if they can get it going from behind the arc because Memphis sits 27th in the league in three-pointers per game. Then you have the home court advantage to factor in. The Pistons have been good at home this year, 25-15. and 15. It's fan appreciation night, last regular season home game. Bobbleheads are being given out. Expect attendance to be good. Plus, Memphis is 12-28 and 28 on the road this season. So check in on the status of Blake Griffin. It looks like he's going to play tonight. Does look like Blake Griffin is going to be good to go. Told Dwayne Casey that he's feeling better. It's not laboring like it was against Charlotte the other night. Charlotte, by the way, one of the teams chasing Detroit for that final spot in the postseason. Detroit occupying the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference right now. One game lead on both Miami and Charlotte, who are both in action tonight. Charlotte on the road at Cleveland. Miami welcoming Philadelphia in what could be Dwayne Wade's final home game. So a Detroit win, coupled with losses by Miami and Charlotte, would mean the Pistons can clinch tonight. By the way, maybe a little extra edge for the Pistons this evening. It is going to be a skeleton crew for Memphis. Again, they're not competing. They're 16 games under 500. A lot of players are not going to send out for meaningless games at the end of the year. Out tonight, officially listed as out tonight against the Pistons, Kyle Anderson, Avery Bradley, Dylan Brooks, Mike Conley, Jaron Jackson Jr., C.J. Miles, Joe Kim Noah, and Jonas Valanciunas. Other news and notes before we switch over to hockey to close the day. Chris Archer has been suspended five games for his role in a brawl the other day. A benches clearing brawl on Sunday between the Pirates and Reds. Yasiel Puig gets a two-game suspension. Kyler Murray is heading to Phoenix today to meet with the Cardinals just over two weeks until the NFL draft in Nashville. Indians have shut down Mike Clevenger for six to eight weeks. He suffered an upper back strain. Meanwhile, Dustin Pedroia will make his season debut tonight. It is Boston's home opener against Toronto. 
Here's a big one. Ignis Brasdakis has declared for the NBA draft. He plans on hiring an agent and has no plans to return to Michigan for his sophomore season. That's a big one. Minnesota Wild announced they will bring back head coach Bruce Boudreaux despite speculation he could be fired. Boudreaux has one year left on his contract. The team is going to let him finish it. Houston Rockets head coach Mike D'Antoni has been hospitalized with an intestinal virus. He is expected to be released this evening, but he will not coach in the team's regular season finale against Oklahoma City. And Slava Voinov has been ruled ineligible for the 2018-2019 NHL season. He lost his appeal. He was suspended by Commissioner Gary Bettman after being charged with domestic abuse in November. Big last 24 hours for Aaron Rodgers. He denies any rift between him and Mike McCarthy like was suggested in a report that was put out yesterday. He called it a smear campaign, also gave details on what injuries he played through in the 2018 season. I love Mike McCarthy. He's a, he's a great man. I mean, he's got a huge heart. Uh, he really cares about his players, um, and he showed that to us. You know, he's um, contrary to the article. You know, we spent a lot of times hours really starting in 2009 i think it was you know we just talk like after thursdays three or four hours sometimes and it'd be like an hour of ball and two hours about life or stories from pittsburgh or whatever and, and you know share a lot of really uh, intimate moments you know thoughts and feelings and stuff over the years and um and i love those that was Aaron Rodgers this morning as part of an interview with Packers beat writer Rob Domofsky. My favorite part of this interview, something you maybe never thought you'd hear, let's play that back. I love Mike McCarthy. That might be the biggest headline that we get out of this. I tell you what, I give Aaron Rodgers a ton of credit for the job he's doing controlling the situation. This has been a weird, divisive situation. I really like the job that Rodgers has done handling it. I think that shows a lot of maturity, and we're seeing Rodgers take ownership and responsibility and be the leader that the Packers need him to be. I really like what I've seen out of Rodgers this week. I love Mike McCarthy. All right, let's switch over to the Stanley Cup playoffs to end the day. One more sleep until we get a drop the puck on one of the greatest events in all of sports, the Stanley Cup playoffs. We have five matchups tomorrow night, beginning with Columbus at Tampa Bay. That game starts at 7. The Penguins visit the Islanders at 7.30. St. Louis is in Winnipeg at 8. At 9.30, Nashville welcomes Dallas. And Vegas visits San Jose at 10.30. If you haven't filled out your bracket yet, you still have time. Did you know there was a bracket challenge for the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs? You can do it. They're collecting data from it right now. It's essentially a fan vote. And what I'm seeing from the fans, that as they fill out their bracket, there's one team far and away that is the consensus favorite. The Tampa Bay Lightning are the champions in 48% of brackets sent in to the NHL Bracket Challenge. You know, and honestly, why shouldn't they be? They're my pick to win the Cup. They're pretty much the safe pick to win the Cup. I'm hoping Pittsburgh will prove me wrong and hoist the Cup for the third time in four years, but I think it's going to be Tampa. A team that has two guys with more points this season than Nikita Kucherov, that's pretty deep. Braden Point has stepped up big time for Tampa Bay, and he's taken on leadership roles. He's become a go-to scorer. That's why Tampa Bay is going to be far and away the favorite. However, if they fail to capture the Cup this season, if the Lightning don't win the Stanley Cup, if they're not holding it this June, it will go down as likely the biggest failure in all of sports. It'll be up there 
with the 18-0 New England Patriots team that lost the Super Bowl to Eli Manning and the Giants. Maybe even more than that, because this Lightning team that won 62 of 82 games this year, who's going to beat them in a seven-game series? This is Tampa's to lose. And everyone talks about how this is a wasted season for Duke, how this is a failure. Not even going to be close to that if Tampa Bay fails to win the Stanley Cup this year. So with that expectation, with that regular season dominance, it breeds expectations as well. The President's Trophy is great, but that's not enough. Not when you're getting 48% of the vote and nobody else is even getting to double digits. Next highest on the list, who the fans think will win the Stanley Cup this summer? Calgary, 7.4%. 48% first place, 7.4% second place. The rest of the top five have Boston, the Washington Capitals to repeat, and then Nashville. That's the top five. For reference, since I have it in front of me, the rest of the list looks like this. 6 through 10, Pittsburgh, Winnipeg, Toronto, San Jose, St. Louis. 11 through 15, Vegas, the Islanders, Colorado, Dallas, Carolina, with Columbus bringing up the rear. I like the top two teams that the fans voted for, Tampa Bay and then far and away Calgary after them. I think those are the two teams that should be getting most of the fan vote. They each won their conference. You've got to think at some point it's going to be Tampa's year. And I'm happy for Bill Peters getting fired by Carolina, goes to Calgary and achieves all the success that he's had this year. But it's just too perfect for the top two seeds to meet in the Stanley Cup final, isn't it? Someone is going to get upset somewhere down the line. Will it be in the East where it's much deeper, but you have a far and away more dominant number one seed? Or will it be Calgary? I know the Bruins got a lot of votes. I know Ryan Stieg would probably tell you the same thing. I'm going to ask him Friday when he's co-hosting with me. At some point, they're going to Boston Bruin themselves. At some point, the Bruins are going to do something that will cost them a trip to the Stanley Cup. I don't see them winning it. I've had a tough time seeing Washington repeat with the pieces they lost from last season. I think they have a better shot than Boston at getting there. And then Nashville rounding out the top five in the fan vote. Nashville is not the second best team in the Western Conference this year. That's Winnipeg. I'm surprised Winnipeg was not higher on the list. To me, the Western Conference final will feature two Canadian teams. It's going to be Calgary and Winnipeg. San Jose will have a shot to sneak in there, but I think San Jose's got a better shot at reaching the conference finals than Nashville does. Nashville's opportunity was two years ago when they lost to Pittsburgh in the cup final. That's the best team that they've had in recent memory. We'll get into this a lot more later on throughout the week. Again, Ryan Stieg will be here on Friday. We'll break down the Thursday matchups. Frozen 4 also drops the puck on Thursday with the semifinal round. We'll break that down. We will preview Saturday's championship. A lot more hockey talk coming up throughout the week. This is what we leave you with. The NHL regular season media market rankings. Pittsburgh was the top media market for NHL games this regular season. Buffalo came in second, followed by Vegas, St. Louis, and Minneapolis-St. Paul. Those were the top five NHL media markets this season. Rounding out the top ten, Tampa Bay was sixth, Providence seventh, Chicago eighth, Nashville ninth, Boston and D.C. tied for tenth. With that, we are out of time. Let's call it a day. As always, appreciate you hanging out with me. Tomorrow, John Michael Hofling of ABC10 will be in studio with me. We'll have plenty to break down for you as well. Hope to have you with us. And once again, if you missed any part of the show, you can hear it on demand with the on-demand section of our mobile app. Search ESPN-UP in the Apple iStore or Google Play. Get our app for free. Appreciate you tuning in as always. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Until tomorrow. 
Catch us 4 Eastern, 3 Central right here on ESPN-UP. I'm Danner Hoops. Thanks for listening to the Sports Pen. I love Mike McCarthy. 